passage this morning comes from Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 8. The passage is printed in your bulletin. You could also follow along in your own Bible. This is the Gospel of Luke, the 20th chapter, beginning in the first verse. This is the word of the Lord. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple, and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, is the baptism of John from heaven or from man? They discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death. For they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Would you please be seated and then would you join me in a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we ask this morning as we look together at your word that you would guide us by your Holy Spirit, that we would see more of you that we would understand our need for you and that you would use your word in our hearts to sanctify us and to move us to glorify you in spirit and in truth. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and we ask that all of this would be for his glory this morning. It is in your name we pray. Amen. Let me just remind you, there's an overflow room back here if you need more space. There's special need seating in the hallway. There are two deacons on duty if you need any help at all. Those deacons are available to help you, and, uh, and those resources are easy to access. You can find the information in your bulletins if you need it. This morning's passage from Luke chapter 20 deals with the subject of authority. It deals with the subject of authority. And I think as human beings, we all understand the concept of authority intrinsically. From the youngest among us to the oldest, we have at various points in our lives been under some form of authority, whether it be our parents or civil rulers or bosses. We have experienced that authority. We have also likely been in positions where we have exercised our own authority. Authority is woven into the fabric of society by God's design. And so as we hear the subject being broached in Luke chapter 20, we intrinsically understand something about authority. I want to read to you a definition from R.C. Sproul concerning authority. Listen to what he says about authority. The very word authority has within it the word author. 
An author is someone who creates and possesses a particular work. Insofar as God is the foundation of all authority, He exercises that foundation because He is the author and the owner of His creation. He is the foundation upon which all authority stands or falls. And so R.C. Sproul would point in the word authority to the root word author. That is, all authority comes from the author, the creator of all things. Now, I believe that's an important concept if you're going to understand the passage this morning. So I want to begin with an illustration, a picture that will help us to understand Luke chapter 20. God is the author of all salvation, the creator of it. And if we conceive of all of creation as one big circle, we can begin to imagine or understand the spheres of God's authority or the spheres of God's sovereignty in all of life. We begin to think about some of the spheres of God's authority. We might begin, for instance, with civil authority. God has authority all over all governments and all over all governance. We could think about church authority, the ecclesiastical authority. God has being the creator of the church. We can think about the family. God has authority over the family. We can think about education and instruction. God has authority over this. We can think about nature and the spheres of all that is created. We can think about life and death. Heaven and hell. And we can think about history. Okay? Now I know this is not a comprehensive picture of all of creation, but it represents to us the spheres of God's authority. Having created these things, He is, by this very definition of His authorship, the one who has authority over these areas of life. And God, in creating these, uh, all that exists, And all that is in the world, he delegates certain authority within these realms, doesn't he? He gives authority in in civil matters to kings and presidents. He gives authority in the church to pastors, elders, deacons, and evangelists. He gives authority within the family to mothers and fathers, okay? And yet there are some areas of life where he doesn't delegate authority. He doesn't say to kings or to pastors, you have authority over life and death. Or authority over history or authority over heaven and hell. Understanding the root of authority and how it plays out in all of creation is very significant to how we understand this passage this morning. For as we begin looking at Luke chapter 20, the priest and the scribes and the elders ask a question concerning the authority of Jesus. They ask of Jesus, where do you get this authority? And who has given it to you? That's what they say in verse 2. So they are essentially asking of Jesus, where has this authority been derived? In which sphere of life? And where has it been delineated For God has, for instance, given the priests and the scribes authority, for He gave it to the tribe of Levi. 
through Aaron the priest to be handed from one generation to another. This is the authority given by God. And so they ask Jesus, where have you gotten your authority? Where has it been derived? Who has given it to you? For Jesus spoke as one who exercised authority in the temple. If we're going to understand the question this morning, then there's a logical path that we need to walk through this passage. And it first begins with Jesus' message. Jesus' message. For these group of men who ask the question of Jesus, they ask it in response to His message. Look at verse 1. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. This is the message of Jesus in the temple. This is what He was doing as He interacted with the people in the temple. Now let's first find ourselves Where is this passage? How do we orient ourselves in the Gospel of Luke? I want to remind you that Jesus has come from the northern regions of Galilee. He has ventured towards Jerusalem. He has now, in the last two chapters, passed through Jericho and Bethany and Bethpage over the Mount of Olives, fulfilling the Old Testament Scriptures. He has come into the city of Jerusalem, and all of the Gospel writers record that when He entered the city of Jerusalem, He went into the temple and He began to teach and to preach. The teaching of Jesus seems pretty innocuous. It seems harmless in some ways, and we'll talk about that in a second. But what about this preaching the gospel? Have you ever considered how is it that Jesus preaches the gospel? Because I think we often conceive of the gospel as being a later development. Christ dies, he resurrects, and then people begin speaking about the good news, okay? As if it was a guarded or a disguised message prior to Jesus' resurrection. But you know what? On the contrary, we see various times where Jesus is said to be preaching the gospel, preaching the good news. Mark chapter 1, Mark says at the very beginning of the gospel that after John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus went about preaching the gospel, that the kingdom of God was at hand and that people needed to repent and believe the gospel of God. It is very clear that in the appropriate circumstances, to the right audience, Jesus was sharing the very details of his life, death, and resurrection. He says in John chapter 17, this is eternal life, that they believe in God the Father and they believe in Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Jesus was very aware of the gospel message and he began to share it with those who would listen and here he does it within the temple beginning in verse 1. And you remember how often the priests and the scribes respond to the teaching and the preaching of Jesus. Beginning in Luke chapter 4, it says that the priests and the scribes were confused about Jesus' teaching. Do you remember why? They were confused about his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. He taught as one who had authority not like their own scribes, okay? Not like their own scribes. Do you know what that means? It's very common. I mean, it was actually, there was no other way of doing it than this way. It was very common for the scribes of this day, for the rabbis to teach like this. They would say, listen, I tell you, love the Lord your God with all your heart. And I tell you this because I've heard it from Rabbi Benjamin, who heard it from Rabbi Zechariah, who was taught this by Rabbi David, who read this in the Talmud. 
And the people would say, well, well done, right? That was very wise. You just shared like four rabbis, and now we all believe it because it has this, this lineage of authority to affirm it. And Jesus said to the people, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And the people were like, you and who else? Like, what rabbis do you have to lean upon? And Jesus said, no, you don't get it. I say to you. I teach you. I preach the gospel. I will clarify the word of God. I will guide you into all righteousness. And as Jesus was teaching in the temple and preaching the gospel, it began to become very clear to the people that he taught as one who had an inherent authority. As one who sat at the center of the circle, having authority over all of these spheres, who taught as one who didn't need permission, whose teaching was not contingent upon another, who sat himself apart from all else, needing no one else, and taught only on his own authority. That's why these men then say to Jesus, on whose authority do you teach these things? And who gave you this authority? We don't have time to trace the idea of the authority of Jesus through the Gospels. But let me tell you, the idea is prevalent and Jesus has been very clear about the authority that he has. Okay? Now, just to survey this idea from 10,000 feet in the air, let me give you a few examples. The Gospel of John is filled with Jesus' words on his authority. And I'll give you a few of those examples. John chapter 5. Jesus says, authority has been given to me by the Father to execute judgment. So Jesus has authority to execute judgment. John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Jesus says, the authority that I have has been given to me by the Father. It is given to me by the Father. So he connects your right to God the Father, having given me the authority. John chapter 10, Jesus says that he has authority over life and over death. What does he say? I have authority from heaven, and I may lay down my life, and I may take it back up again, right? John chapter 14, Jesus speaking of the Father says, I am in him, and he is in me. I have authority of my own. And so he speaks of his own authority. John chapter 17, I I just mentioned it. In John chapter 17, Jesus says, this is everlasting life. That they would believe in the Father and they would believe also in Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Right? Having authority over everlasting life. Okay? Jesus has clearly communicated the authority that he has, both his own and that which has been given to him by the Father. And it is obvious from Jesus' words that he has authority over all. All of creation, all of life, everything that exists, Jesus has authority over. So then let me ask you a question. If it has been clear in all of Jesus' teaching, repeated again and again, why then do these priests, scribes, and elders ask the question this morning? If they should have known, then why do they say, by what authority do you do these things? 
See, to answer that question, we have to understand the second point this morning, and that is Jesus' audience. I know in the back you can't see down here, okay? I get it. You probably can't read it anyway, but just trust me, it says Jesus' audience, okay? Jesus' audience. We have to understand Jesus' audience. Now, let me tell you, when Jesus teaches, He's speaking to a particular audience or to a particular group of people, and that will shape the way He speaks. So, for instance, when He speaks to disciples, the disciples whose hearts are being opened and they have ears to hear and eyes to see, at least most of them, He will speak in a particular way about the truths of God, and it will be very clear. Then when Jesus speaks to seekers like Nicodemus or Zacchaeus or the woman at the well, he will speak in a different way. For they have a drawing or a yearning for the things of God, but they're not yet followers. So he will speak to expose their sin and he will show them something of his beautiful righteousness. And they will be drawn to him. There is at least one other category of people that Jesus will speak to. And that will be his enemies, okay? And Jesus will speak to his enemies in a very different way than he will speak to his disciples or to those who are seeking. You might be wondering, how do we know that these men that Jesus speaks to are his enemies? Well, the two verses that precede chapter 20 make it very clear for us. Look at 47 and 48 of chapter 19. Jesus was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, right? So it's not ambiguous. There's no question this is not an unbiased group of men. The passage says as we get into the temple that this group of men were seeking to destroy him. Now, there's a significant word, this word destroy. I'm going to put it up here. It is the Greek word apolumai, okay? It's a compound word, two words. Lumai, which means to destroy. Apo, which means from. It's a stronger version of destroy. It literally means to remove from the face of the earth, to annihilate, to eradicate, to destroy as if never existed, Okay? This group of men who now ask Jesus by what authority he teaches, the same group of men who we just heard in verse 47 are seeking to make it as if Jesus never existed, as if ears never heard him, as if tongues never spoke of him, as if no one ever knew that he existed. Okay? They are clearly his enemies. And so we ought not read their question as if it's a genuine question, all right? We ought to read their question as if they appear in the temple and they're saying to Jesus to exert some sort of authority over or influence over him. They're saying to him, you answer us. By what authority do you think you do this? Who do you think you are? We have authority in the temple, and when we say stand, you stand. When we say jump, you jump. And when we say answer us, you will answer us. By what authority do you think you do these things? And they were seeking to silence him. Not only is it clear from the two verses preceding this chapter 
But it's also clear from the way that Jesus responds to them, isn't it? Verse 3, Jesus answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, is the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Okay, You see, here's what Jesus is beginning to do. Okay, He asks them the baptism of John. Do you remember it? And surely they remembered it. We just read it from Matthew 3. And what did it say? It said that all of Jerusalem and Judea was going out into the desert to be baptized by John. Of course they remember it. The whole city was a buzz. The people were moving. They were all going out. And what was happening in the desert? John the Baptist was declaring to them, be baptized for the remission of sins, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then as John is baptizing, he sees Jesus coming and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus asked John to baptize him, and John says, no, I can't do that. And Jesus says, it is necessary that all righteousness would be fulfilled. And then Jesus is baptized, and the heavens open up, and the Holy Spirit descends like a dove, and a voice from heaven says, this is my Son, my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Okay? Jesus says to the priests and the scribes and the elders, do you remember that? The baptism of John? Was that from heaven or was it from man? Oh man, he paints them into a corner, doesn't he? There's no good way to answer that question. There's no good way for them to answer that question. And let me tell you why. And I want to tell you why by telling you a little story, okay? Have you ever been in a a heated argument or a debate where you are convinced that you're right? I mean, you are absolutely convinced there's no way you could be wrong, and you get into the thick of it, and at some point you realize that you're wrong. You've done that, right? What do we usually do? I think most of us usually double down, don't we? Okay? We realize we're wrong, but we're so far into this, we're, n- we're not going to give up. Okay? And then it just becomes absurd, doesn't it? I'll give you an example of this. Over Thanksgiving break, we had our family in town, and on Thanksgiving, we always go for a run. That's what we do on Thanksgiving. So we're going to do a 5K on Thanksgiving, and everybody's talking about where we're going to go for a run. And we decided we're going to do Blackwater Creek Trail, but no one could decide where we were going to get onto the trail, okay? Some wanted to go to Lincoln, and some to Holland's Mill, and some wanted to start from downtown and come back. And I said, okay, listen, I'm going to make a decision. We're going to Holland's Mill. We're driving to Holland's Mill, and I told my wife, okay, I'm kind of regretting this decision. I don't want to go through the train tunnel because it's a cold day, and that train tunnel has all that water coming down the tunnel. I don't want to get wet. It's going to be miserable. Forget it. So I told her, at Holland's Mill, when we get to the top of the hill, we're going to go right, and we'll go towards downtown. And she said, no, you're wrong. Going right doesn't go towards downtown. And I said, no, you're wrong. Going right goes towards downtown. Going left goes to Kemper Street. And she said, no, going right goes towards Lincoln Middle School. You're going to go the wrong way. And I said, no, going backwards goes to Lincoln Middle School. Going right goes downtown. Going left goes to Kemper Street. She said, no, you're wrong. I said, no, you're wrong. So we argued about it. We got to the trail. We got up the hill where the paths diverged. We looked at the trail map. I looked at the trail map, and I immediately realized I was wrong. But instead of turning around and saying to my wife, I was wrong, you were right, you know what I said to her? I said, well, Kate, looks like we were both kind of right. Do you do that? Is it just me? (laughs) Looks like we were both kind of right. Yeah, I guess we'll never know. (laughs) 
That's what the, the priests, the scribes, and the elders are doing in this passage, okay? And you see, it's very simple why this is true. From the beginning of time, the evidence of God's work in the world has been the demonstration of His authority over these things. When God parts the Red Sea, when fire comes from heaven, it's His authority over nature, right? When He raises people from death to life, it's His authority over life and death. Uh, When He demonstrates that He gives salvation, it's His authority over heaven and hell. When He alters the course of history, it's a demonstration of His authority over those things, okay? God demonstrates His work in this world through the miraculous. And the people of God since the dawn of time have witnessed that. You know what happened at the baptism of Jesus and John the Baptist uh, baptizing in the desert, God's authority is demonstrated over all this, right? I mean, the heavens are parted. A dove, the Holy Spirit descends. A voice from heaven comes. There's the sign, the religious sign of baptism being given. Jesus says this is necessary that all righteousness might be fulfilled. I mean, this is the demonstration of God's authority at that moment. And anyone who saw it or heard about it had to admit something miraculous was going on. And so Jesus asked them, was it from heaven and hell? Uh, Was it from heaven or from man? And you know what? I think they knew it. I think they realized they had been arguing so long that this was wrong, but they knew in their hearts, and yet they would not yield. They would not give in because this was evidence of the work of God in this world, and they refused to submit to it. And so the enemies of God, the enemies of Christ, they asked Jesus, by what authority do you do these things? And they were seeking to silence him. That brings us then to the last point, because in this passage, Jesus then responds. Look at Jesus' response in verse 8. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. See, Jesus' response is very fitting because he's dealing with his enemies. He's dealing with with those who are seeking to destroy him. And whereas throughout the Gospel of John, when a question of his authority is asked, he will speak clearly about his authority. But when the enemies of God, only seeking to undermine and to destroy him, ask him a question, by what authority do you do these things? He says to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do this. You see what Jesus is doing? He is essentially asking them a question, exposing their their rebellion, and then he's moving on just as quickly. He will have nothing to do with them, and he continues to teach and to preach within the temple. He is essentially saying to the priests, the scribes, and the elders, no, you don't ask me the questions, I ask you the questions. And if I desire, you will answer me. For I have authority over all these things. You do not tell me when to speak, I tell you. And again, if I ask, you will answer. And if I uh, desire to answer you, I will. And if not, I will continue to teach and to preach in the temple. I am the unrivaled, unchallenged, contingent upon no one, God of the universe. And so Jesus says to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. 
And as we wrap up this passage this morning, let me just say then as a takeaway for us, I believe that the church today could use more of this in our everyday life, okay? The authority of Jesus, the authority of our Jesus. We could use that in our everyday life, all right? Let me tell you, there's a development in the church, the Christian church at large, that I think begins sometime in the early 1900s, but you could go earlier or later. There's a development in the church where the church initially sought to see more compassion and mercy in Jesus. For hundreds of years, from the Puritans before the Puritans and through the Princeton theologians all the way into the early 1900s, Jesus, we, the church saw much of his righteousness and his judgment. But at the turn of the century, there was a desire to see more of the mercy and compassion of Christ, which was good. But that quickly became seeing more of the, the, the meekness and the timidity and the uh, the love of Jesus. And those things are also characteristics of Christ. But somewhere in the mid-1900s that became seeing more of Christ to seeing only these things in Christ, right? And the love of Christ became the only thing that captivated the people. And they began to see a Jesus and to create a Jesus for the culture and for the multitudes who was a good buddy, a friend, a Jesus who accepted me and supported me even when others did not, right? That became the version of Jesus at large for a society. And so in the 1980s, you have lots of good phrases that came about. One of them was, Jesus is my homeboy, okay? Right, That's, that is a message that communicates, he's my cheerleader, right? Uh, he accepts me for who I am, and we're doing this together, right? And it's, it's a good support group, okay? That version of Jesus for the multitudes, for the masses, is not the Jesus of the Scriptures. It's not the authoritative Jesus. And you see, whether it's the priests, the scribes, and the elders who are trying to subvert and manipulate Jesus, or it's the multitudes who are adopting His image and saying His name, using it as a slogan or catchphrase, that is not the Jesus of the Bible. That's the easy version of Jesus, the palatable, digestible version, the Jesus on my own terms, but it is not the Jesus as he's revealed in Scripture. Matthew 28, Jesus says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. That's the Jesus of Scripture, the one who is very God of very God, who maintains authority over all of creation. And you know what? It's the same Jesus who in John 5 says that judgment has been given to me by the Father, the same Jesus who executes judgment. We were singing about that Jesus in the song we sang this morning. It is the, the Jesus who brings judgment. It is the Jesus who judges sin, who executes unrighteousness, who will not tolerate any of it. It is the Jesus who demands obedience and has authority over all creation. And it is the Jesus who set aside his authority who came to earth, and as he said, I have authority to lay down my life, and I have authority to take it back up. The same Jesus who laid down his life to redeem lost sinners, that they might be drawn unto him for a purpose. That purpose is in obedience to him that he would be glorified. That with authority as the very God of very God, he would be lifted up that he would be honored and praised. That's the Jesus of Scripture. Let me tell you then, 
what is the end of authority? What is the purpose of authority on earth? It's very simple. See, in, in these areas of life where, where God gives authority, He gives it to kings and presidents and pastors and evangelists and mothers and fathers, where God gives authority, it is by His design that those authorities might reflect the image of God and might bear that image glorifying Him. So that good kings are a good picture of a good God. So that good pastors Elders and deacons are a good picture of a good God. So that good fathers and mothers are a picture of a good God. So on and so forth. That is the design. I said that authority is woven into the very fabric of life. That is the design for the authority that has been given by God to men and women in all of creation that they might reflect His image. And so this morning, as we close speaking about the authority of our Jesus, He has died and He has claimed us as His own, that by being sons and daughters of the living God, we might in turn glorify Him out of our obedience to Him through the blood of Christ Jesus by the work of the Spirit who now makes us willing and able to deny the old self and to live and the righteousness of Christ Jesus. In that, He is glorified. So then, let us continue our worship as we glorify our Lord and our Savior. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning, and we ask that you would work through the preaching of your word. We ask that you would work by your Spirit, to apply these things to our hearts, to glorify yourself, to make us more like our Savior, to help us to see more of our Jesus, not as we would design Him, not as we would imagine Him, but as He is. The Lord of the universe, the King of kings, and our Savior who has come to redeem us. We ask that you would be glorified. We ask that you would be lifted up, that you would be honored by everything we say and do this morning. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we ask all of this.